I'm somebody who's just feeling very stuck in life. Like My father passing for me was a breaking point. I had a lot of fear. Elicinia is a unique psilocybin retreat based in Mexico with a focus on meditation, neuroscience, and brain health. I just had this realization that I was like, I'm the spot. It was magical from the get-go. I mean, it's hard to explain. It almost reinforced to me that my base is a hell of a lot more joyous than I had imagined. We see each other differently. Before going through therapy, it was like picking out negative core beliefs one by one and working on them. But gave me this opportunity to wipe the slate clean and they were just gone. There is a space between that we all have and we can use that space. That's like grieving. Today I have a very special guest. Today, Edith tells her story as someone who's been in recovery from drugs and alcohol for over 30 years. How do you negotiate your use of healing with psychedelics when you've come from a place and framework of recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous? Today, we dive into Edith's experience at Elocinia, her coming to reconcile these opposing ideas and frameworks, and how she found peace and greater well-being. You'll love this. Enjoy. Edith, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's such a delight to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you decided to come to Elocinia? Absolutely. Tanya, thank you so much. And I feel like it's such a great pleasure to just be here with you today recording this podcast. I went to Elicinia in November. I had heard about the Elicinia retreat and how phenomenal it was, the fantastic work they were doing there with different psychedelic medicines. And because of my own background, I felt this was something that I needed to go explore and do myself. So I went off on this wonderful healing adventure to Elisenia. Can you tell us a little bit about what your background is? I have been in the healthcare profession for over 30 years. I started off as a physical therapy aide, massage therapy. I eventually went off and got another degree in an alternative healthcare profession. I became a nurse and have been working now as a nurse for about 11 years. So that's my healthcare background and where I come from. And it's a mixture of both alternative complementary health as well as Western medicine. And I feel very fortunate to have that background. In regards to my own background and my personal history, I grew up in a very abusive alcoholic home. Both parents, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom suffered from depression. There may have been some mania there, so perhaps bipolar, but no, there was never a, a medical diagnosis from that, just from the way she acted and looking back as an adult and discussing things with my siblings, how we saw that and came to understand that later on in life. It was incredibly traumatic. I turned to mostly alcohol and some other drugs in my life and used that as an answer to a lot of these just deep, traumatic, emotional wounds. And I found my solace in those substances that finally I found some relief in being okay within the world. I remember the first time I drank to, to have an effect to get inebriated. And I remember in my mind just going, wow, I feel okay. And it took all this pain away and all this chatter in my head that was constantly there. Eventually, later on in my teen years, I was introduced to 12-step rooms, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was 17 at the time. And by the time I actually did get sober, I was 19 and a half. And I remained sober since then and it's been over 32 years now i imagine that with both your extensive healthcare background and the background in sobriety that it was a difficult decision to move into psychedelics as a modality so how did making that decision look for you back when i got sober 
one of the only sort of treatment modalities that were out there was the 12-step programs. And there was an explosion also of like 28 or 30-day treatment facilities, most of which used the, the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps and Traditions, that whole philosophy and methodology to help people get sober. And the background of the 12 Steps is very deeply influenced by some pretty stringent Christianity beliefs. That Christian doctrine really runs deep within Alcoholics Anonymous in their big book, in their 12 Steps. There's a huge need, quote unquote, to you know, find a belief in a God, find a belief in a higher power, turning your will in your life over and that higher power is going to keep you sober. There's a lot of other things in the program. There's a lot of support. There's community. I really found a tremendous amount of support within the meetings and finding other sober people that were like-minded. But there was also a lot of sort of guilting and use of shame and fear to have people do things all the same way. So it was very much like, oh, if you don't believe this yet, you will very soon. And for newcomers coming into the program, they would always say, take the, the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. So like, you don't really have anything to say, just listen and be quiet. There was this belief that you only discuss things that were related to alcoholism. So if you had emotional things, you didn't want to discuss that. And in fact, a lot of the things that are used in the program oftentimes take you away from really exploring that emotional component of really, you know, what is the core sort of reason as to why people are using substances. They're using it as medicine to heal themselves from all the pain and hurt that they're feeling inside and all the emotional trauma that they have. Absolutely. And so um, in one regard, Alcoholics Anonymous was very good at creating community of sober people to come together. It is where I learned how to journal. It's where I learned how to really open up, where I started to learn how to trust other human beings. Also, it's a place where I really grew up in the rooms. I walked in the rooms, this angry young kid who reacted to everything and I had no emotional regulation. And finding that emotional regulation is something that I had to do. And it wasn't really what I found within the rooms. The 12 steps and the rooms of AA aren't really equipped to provide that support. The hard thing about Alcoholics Anonymous too, at that point when I was getting sober, there was always this belief in saying that you didn't need to look outside of the rooms. You know, there was always talk of AA approved literature. Don't look outside of the AA approved books. You know, you only need to look here. You don't need to seek outside help. And I think that's really detrimental to people who are recovering from addictions, especially now shedding light on things where we see there's a lot of dual diagnosis. There's depression, there's anxiety, there's PTSD. There's so many things and they, they are not being addressed appropriately, I feel. And AA really is not the place to do that, but the encouragement to go out and seek to find the appropriate help in order to do that it's not really emphasized in the rooms. I really appreciate when you talk about, you know, I walked in as an angry 17 year old and you grew up in the rooms and you're grateful for it. And that's amazing. So was there like this negotiation in your mind and within your family that it was okay to start to look into this avenue? And did you do that because you were still carrying things that you felt like you had done all the work to try to get there, but you just couldn't get over that hill? It's interesting because for many years, I knew that Bill Wilson, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, had in his past, I think he was over 20 years sober at the time, he had dabbled in LSD. He was someone who was always seeking something that could help him. He suffered from severe debilitating depression, huge depressive episodes that would take him out. And because of my own depression, I would take antidepressants. There are times where I stopped taking them because I thought that they weren't good for me. I'd fall into these big, deep, depressive episodes. 
there would be circumstances that would happen to me where I would become more depressed. So on and off throughout my sobriety, I would take antidepressants, I would stop. Something would happen, I'd get super depressed, I couldn't get out of it, I'd start taking them again. And then I, you know, I'd, like I said, I had always known that Bill Wilson was this seeker of deeper healing, and I started looking into it. And I had read some of the AA literature where it talks about his experiences with LSD at the VA center in Los Angeles and having profound transformational experiences with complete ego dissolution and insights and awarenesses. And basically, he describes it as a spiritual awakening that profoundly impacted him. And he continued to do it at different times in a supervised setting. And it helped his depression. That was the only thing that had ever helped alleviate his depression. And he talked about that extensively in the book, Pass It On. And so finally with myself, you know, as I'm continuing to deal with a lot of depression, anxiety, I was talking to a therapist of mine and I told her that I was very interested into looking into different psychedelics or different medicines that I had heard about in order to help with my depression and anxiety. And she was very supportive about that. And she even talked to me and me and my partner about it. Finally, I started exploring it. And this was back in 2019. And I started first using ketamine. So I did ketamine assisted psychotherapy. I used oral lozenges as well as intramuscular ketamine. That was incredibly beneficial in regards to me looking at and dealing with a lot of the traumas and emotional dysregulation that I had. I was able to sort of just have a different relationship with my traumas in those experiences. And from using the ketamine, I started looking into other psychedelics at the time, and I started seeing all this research that was coming out that they were having these benefits. John Hopkins was doing research. They were doing research on people with PTSD, on people with depression, people with anxiety. Now there's even one out that speaks to addiction, you know, and they were looking at all the different psychedelics. And finally, as time went on, I again brought this to the attention of my partner. And I told her that I really wanted to explore the healing qualities of psilocybin because of what I had been reading. And so I've been sharing this information with my partner and she finally said, okay, I give you my blessing with this work. So I did some microdosing at first and I found that to be helpful. There's small shifts and changes that I noticed at first. And then when I found out about Eleusinia and the experience that they have over the long weekend and the different psychedelics that they present, I thought, wow, this would be a really profound experience, I feel, for me to go and do this in a really safe and controlled setting. So you felt good about the decision or did you start to have second thoughts as you, you know, traveled so far and flew to Mexico? (laughs) Well, it was interesting because it's not really that I had second thoughts, but I knew at the time prior to going, I had been taking Prozac. You know, speaking with some people, they told me that the Prozac could inhibit a macrodose experience with psilocybin. And so that to me gave me some pause. And I thought, oh man, you know, am I going to travel all the way to Mexico to have this, this really, you know, intense experience? And am I going to be let down? So that was the one thing that I thought about. I was really worried about that. I thought perhaps I'm not going to have this prolific experience that, that I was anticipating. So that was the main anxiety I had. And then there was a little bit of sort of like excitement anxiety too. Like, oh, what is this going to be? Like, what am I going to experience? Am I going to be very different afterwards? You know, so there was a lot of that. But really, like my main worry was whether or not I was going to have the experience. And then the other one was, interestingly enough, connected more to like sober community. Like what what would 12-step program friends of mine think after that I had done this? And so, you know, a little bit of me 
kind of thought about that a little bit. And now I'm at a place where I see the benefits and I think that it's really important to talk about this stuff. And that's kind of what I feel like I want to do now. I want this information to be out there because it is incredibly profound, the healing that happens from these different medicines. Can you tell us a little bit about the morning of the macrodose and how that went for you? What were some of the first sensations that you had? First of all, the setting, you know, they talk about set and setting all the time for these experiences. And I feel that Elicinia's set and setting is phenomenal. First of all, there's this amazing support network of people there to ensure that you are safe and comforted and taken care of. The ceremonial aspect of everything, having this sort of ancient sort of ceremony set up, I felt like, where we all sat around and the medicine was blessed and we had the Mayan shaman there presenting everything to us and the breath work that we did was incredibly important, I felt, because it really set the tone and it helped, at least for me, it really helped me drop into my body and be present. First, because of the discussions I had had with one of the facilitators, with Jessica, I took a tea of the psilocybin and I drank that first. And, you know, initially I wasn't feeling anything and I started to get worried and I thought, oh God, this is not going to work. I'm not going to have the experience. And Jessica and I walked for a little bit and talked about what was happening or not happening. And there was apparently a small window of opportunity for me to take a booster dose and then see if I would have a more prolific experience. So I decided that, yeah, I did want to take the booster dose. So I took that. You know, I waited for a while. I don't know how long, but eventually I left the area where some people were still doing breath work. And I went and sat in one of the hanging hammock chairs and was listening to music. I had a headset on. And then I started to slowly feel the medicine kind of like slowly enveloping me. I could tell that something was happening. I closed my eyes and I can start to see a little of the different color changes. I sort of dropped more in my body and I started to get very emotional. And I had a huge emotional release surrounding my mom and my sister. And I could fully feel the medicine. I could see different kaleidoscope colors and images. And I had this huge emotional release surrounding my mother's death and my relationship with my sister. Although it was deeply sad, it was a really positive experience for me because it was though I allowed all these feelings and emotions just to come through me and come out without judgment, without trying to change it, without trying to change the experience of what I was having, but just being there and seeing what it was allowing this to wash through me. Once I did that, I sort of felt this sort of relief of, ah, okay. And then my experience shifted to utter and complete laughter. I, I looked at another participant there and the both of us, we just started just laughing, deep, deep belly laughter where you couldn't even breathe. And this feeling of just my whole body was just completely filled with joy. It was like this immense, joyful experience. And so it was very interesting to move from these different emotions and just kind of have them freely move through me. And so that was the initial, when I first started feeling the psilocybin and the effects, those were the things that first initially hit me. Beautiful. After you were laughing, what else happened? So so it was wild because psilocybin is of the mushrooms and of the earth. And there was this deep desire within me to be connected to the earth. And I walked over, was barefoot, and I walked over to the grass. And at this time, I could also just see these different mandala patterns within the grass. You know, it looked like the grass was moving. And I feel like I just wanted my body to be rooted in the earth. And I walked over into the grass and 
it looked and felt as though my feet sunk a couple inches into the grass. And I almost felt like I was just rooting into the earth with my feet. At some point, I really wanted to be touching the grass and I got down and I could smell it and feel the blades of grass on my lips. And it was just this really sort of just this moment of oneness with the earth that was really cool and very healing to me. I sat there for a while with that. I didn't want to move. I think I could have been there just in that moment for a long time, just sort of like being sort of enveloped with the earth's love and whatnot. And and then I moved again. I moved down further down the lawn into the sun and I wanted to be in the sunlight, but not completely. I wanted my face covered. And throughout this all, there was this sort of sense of peace, you know, this kind of like interesting feeling of being very peaceful and just allowing these experiences to unfold in front of me and be a part of those experiences. I went down, laid down on the grass later on. At this point, a lot of feelings and emotions came up that had to do with me and my work and how that has been affecting me lately. I'm a nurse. And so I am, I'm a very loving and compassionate being, and I'm very giving of of my support, of my love, and the environment that I work in, I feel it's super important for that person-to-person connection in the hospital setting. And that seems to really be sort of going away these days within the hospital setting. It really breaks my heart to see that. There's more of an emphasis on just making sure that the hospitals are just making more and more profits these days at the expense of the patients and the staff. I felt this sort of sadness for myself and all the giving. And I started to get really angry because I thought, God, I'm so tired of giving. I'm feeling empty inside. I'm not filling my cup up enough myself. You know, I want someone to heal me. I want to heal. I want to heal. I just started crying. And I didn't even know if I wanted to be a nurse anymore. I'm just really questioning all of that. Again, I just like I let the earth sort of just like wrap its arms around me and just like love me. And I felt like all this healing was coming from the earth. And that's the way I was healing. You know, it was like, I was like, okay, the earth is going to love me. (laughs) The earth is going to heal me. And that's what it felt like in that moment. I just let this wash over me. I let it move through me. And, you know, without judgment, without thinking, oh, this is wrong or this is dumb or none of that, just allowing it to happen. And it just felt very cleansing, you know, like this cathartic event that things are just moving through me and out of me. At that point, I got up and and I sat in these outdoor like sofa area and I watched the mountains. And then this is when my psychedelic experience just really turned to this amazing transformational experience of completely being at one with the universe and feeling that I was part of everything and everything was part of everything and everything was part of nothing and nothing was everything. And the visualizations that I had were the mountain was merging with the sky. And then all of a sudden it was like the universe and Then I would see this kaleidoscope images of being in the universe and these wild colors and kaleidoscopes just changing. And I was awestruck. I was just filled with complete and utter bliss and awe. I couldn't even explain at that moment what it was. And even now when I'm hearing these words come out, I feel like that doesn't even do justice to the experience that I had. And then I just remembered, again, just laughing with sheer bliss because I'd never experienced this before. And just being completely and utterly blissed out and awestruck. There was another facilitator that was sitting next to me and I would try and say things to him, Jay, about what it is I was experiencing and seeing and all I could say was, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> over and over and over again. And and then he would laugh with me. And 
you know, it was pretty, pretty phenomenal. I'd have to say it was one of the most like transformational, amazing experiences I've ever had. How was your experience with the mini dose after that? The macro dose was this wild experience. The mini dose was a much smaller version of that. There were still these moments of of being awestruck, of remembering what had happened the day before, seeing a little bit of the psychedelic experiences, the changes in the colors, the changes in, in what I was seeing. But there was also just that deeper sense of groundedness and connection and insight. Also in the mini dose, I felt like I interacted more with people. Oftentimes in, in some social settings, especially in settings where I don't really know too many people, I can get extreme anxiety. And I work through it. I walk through it. I do it. But I'll go away after that event and sort of be like emotionally tired because it took a tremendous amount of energy. And with the mini dose, it just felt like I knew these people. And it was really wonderful. And I wanted to continue to interact. I wanted to continue to be out there with people. We'd walk around the grounds and like talk about certain things we were experiencing or at one point we were making a puzzle. It was just very easy to interact and communicate with people without that self-critic that could be in my head about, oh, you know, there's this critic that is in my head sometimes that like, God, what you're saying is so silly, or I can't believe you said that, whatever it might be, there's constant judgment about whatever I'm saying or doing. And that was not there. Really sort of fantastic, just happy experience of connection with others that felt really good and almost as though I had like known these people for a while. So that was really interesting for me. I really enjoyed that. Did you feel the ongoing like process of integration as you communicated with that group later as the days came to follow? Yeah, absolutely. We would go and talk to each other about the experiences of what was going on there, the changes we were seeing, things that were coming up for us, certain people I connected with more so than others. And sometimes we'd go off and talk separately with each other about our experiences and what type of experiences we were having. And also just writing. Like for me, I just sat there and I journaled so much after, you know, not the macro dose so much that night. I don't know if I journaled or not, but every day that I was there, there was so much insight or so many things that I would write about and that I felt was just like, you know, things I had not written about in forever and a day. There was one point I talked about this at the retreat that I'd stopped journaling for a while because of that self-critic, that critic that said, why would you even journal? You're a terrible speller. The way you explain things is so dumb. Why would you do that? And so at one point, I just finally let that terrible critic come out and I wrote down all the things that it was saying to me. And it just cleared it out. Like it completely cleared it out and allowed me to just go and continue journaling throughout the rest of the weekend without any judgment of what it is that I was writing. And so that was such a freeing experience for me. With the integration of others going and meeting with Andrew, I felt like I was more open to suggestions and body work creating some type of a daily practice that I could bring back into my life here where I live. And then meeting with Josefina and the insights that, that I had in my meetings with her, particularly with deeper healing with my family and how that all shifted and my ability to let go of a lot of judgments and feelings that I had towards certain family members. It was really freeing. And especially coming back from Mexico to the holidays here and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and the holidays can be an incredibly stressful time for me because I feel all this guilt, like obligatory guilt towards my blood family and what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to show up. And I didn't have any of that this Thanksgiving. It was really wonderful because I didn't care and not in a way that was like, F you, I don't care. It was like, I don't care because I'm taking care of myself and I'm going to know that that's the right thing for me to do. And I'm not going to worry about what's going on 
down in my blood family land, but in a very <laughs> loving, like compassionate way, you know, not like F you, but like, yeah, I love you guys, but I don't really need to connect right now and be okay with that. And that's very different for me. I met with you as well. And we talked about my experience and your support there was so important to me. You know, there were a couple of times where I was really freaked out and I needed the additional just okayness, you know, from you, like telling me like, yeah, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it through this. (laughs) (laughs) And you also mentioned that you're noticing more space between triggers and your reactions. And I'm wondering if like, if, you know, your partner noticed it too, if anybody else could feel this and were you having more insights and what were those like as you were, as you were home? So the insights when I came home, for me, it was really about making more boundaries for myself that are very and not harsh. Like I, I used to come and be like, oh, I need to make these boundaries. and They're going to be super harsh and this, that, and the other. But talking like super simply about things or when I need something, instead of allowing it to get to a place where I feel all this anger building up because I'm not saying what I need to say. And then all of a sudden, you know, not exploding, but saying it in a more, more assertive or demanding way that might not be receptive. So, you know, for instance, I thought today we were going to be late to get to the airport. And I just came in and spoke with my partner and said, hey, remember, I've got this thing I need to do it for. And I really want to get back in time from the airport. And so we do need to leave soon. And I just wanted to remind you of that and let you know that, you know, it's really important that we leave very soon. And leave it at that. Whereas before, maybe I wouldn't say anything. I'd let it build up. And finally, I'd come in in anger. And because I feel like my needs aren't being met or I feel like I'm being ignored, I didn't allow that to happen. And I just said, you know, I'm going to pull the car out. I'm going to sit in the car and I'm going to wait for you. So just come on down when you're ready to go. That was really significant because driving to the airport, we actually had a really lovely drive. And sometimes what would happen prior is that there would be an argument. We'd have a really shitty ride to the airport. People would be upset, you know, (laughs) and that didn't happen. And so for me, I'm really taking the time to pause and look at things differently and interact with my partner differently in a way that's like very loving and compassionate and trying to really watch what's my tone like. How can this be perceived? Okay, maybe I want to say it in a different way because usually I say it this way and it doesn't work out so well. So I'm really taking the time to notice the way that I'm talking, not just with my partner, but with other people as well. You know, I was at the grocery store the other day and something came up and I noticed I started to get really impatient and I almost, I almost started taking it out on the person. I was at a self-check thing at Target. For some reason, like I'm done and I go to pay and then it's like assistance needed from representative. And I'm looking around, I'm like thinking, I got to go. I'm on the schedule. I'm doing all this stuff. And this woman, you know, she, I see her, she's standing around in the Target and she's the help person. And she comes over and I'm like, you know, I don't understand why this isn't working and I'm in a hurry. And She's very calm. And then all of a sudden, something in my head just shifted and said, she didn't create this problem. She's here to help you. Take it down a notch. Be kind. And I did. I said, yeah, I don't know what's going on. And I'm sorry. I was kind of in a hurry. And she's like, oh, that's okay. She said, yeah, the uh, receipt paper ran out. And I was like, okay, well, I can wait. You can go ahead and change that. It's no big deal. And, you know, I just came down from my needs being the most important thing and I'm in a hurry to just having a really nice interaction with a with another human being. And for me those are super important interactions. I mean every day we have these interactions with people. Grocery store, where we buy our coffee, where we go have breakfast, and I just feel like even in those small interactions 
it's so important to just be kind and compassionate towards others. And that interaction that I had at Target just reminded me of that. Like to slow down and take a breath, it's really not that important. It's not. And just be kind and loving and compassionate towards your fellow human being. I'm so grateful for your story because I am also a sober person and it was interesting for me to be in the rooms and to start to hear of the rooms of AA and to start to hear people talk more and more about having an experience where they, you know, got to, I want to call it a mystical experience, but I don't think that's correct language because that's more of the psychedelic talk, their higher power experience, you know? Yeah. And I was starting to ask questions about it because I I was kind of waiting for that to happen and and it wasn't happening. And what was happening instead was this reemergence of depression and sadness until I found psychedelics. So I love you sharing that story because now like I'm wondering how you're reconciling now coming back. And also I'm curious with your experience with ketamine and psychotherapy, like I know it's a big, a big jump to even compare the two, but can you give us an idea of the difference and how are you feeling about reconciling your sobriety and your experience? These are very good questions. So with ketamine and with psilocybin, I feel that with psilocybin, if you want to get more metaphysical or in that, you know, metaphysical realm about it, I feel that psilocybin for me was a much more profound, mystical experience by huge leaps and bounds. Psilocybin to me is more of a huge, wild, mystical experience where, at least for me, you know, what you hear about people having where they have this ego dissolution and, you know, they're able to step out of their ego and and see things in a more connected fashion. For me, psilocybin created that experience to the nth degree. And with ketamine, I have had that experience, but not to the extent that I did with psilocybin. I feel that with psilocybin, that is the medicine that I am really going to continue to work with. Ketamine, I'm not so sure anymore. I feel like there are some good benefits with that. And I think that it's a really great resource to have. But I also feel like psilocybin, when you're doing the mushrooms, they're from the earth, so they're natural. And ketamine is manufactured somewhere in a lab. You have to get it from a, from an MD. Oftentimes you have to have insurance. There's a lot of other things. And I think some huge blockers that can inhibit people from utilizing that medicine. And oftentimes it's very expensive. If you're going to do IV ketamine, the cost of it is prohibitory for most people. There's no way that they're going to be able to afford that. And with psilocybin, the toxicity levels of psilocybin are so high that nobody's going to eat that much psilocybin. So it's incredibly safe. It's something that people can easily acquire. So in that regards, I sort of feel for me, that is a, is a much better option in regards to what I'm looking for and the medicines that I want to work with. In regards to making peace with AA and whatnot, or how I'm dealing with that, As far as I'm concerned, the biggest thing that I had difficulty with was alcohol. Again, one of the things that AA really promotes is abstinence, right? And so abstinence is the only way. If you relapse, there's quite a lot of shame and judging that goes on within the rooms, which I find to be really disheartening and it's very sad. Most people who come to the rooms don't stop drinking and never pick up again. There's a lot of people who relapse and now there's a huge focus on harm reduction. There's a lot of addiction specialists, Gaber Mate, who's spoken a lot about this, about the harm reduction model and really looking at addiction in a different fashion. Alcoholics Anonymous looks at addiction as the disease model, which for me doesn't actually ring true anymore. The definition from Gaber Mate where it talks about addiction coming from emotional loss and the need to soothe that pain, whether it's from trauma or some other type of emotional loss, that really is the core of where the addiction is coming from. So it is of utmost importance to actually look at those losses and really, truly 
whatever type of work you can do to help heal those wounds, that's where the answers lie. I'm still abstinent from alcohol because there's a huge family history of alcohol abuse and dysfunction in my family and a lot of addicts and alcoholics. I don't have the desire to drink whatsoever. With these medicines, I feel that they're incredibly important and if not necessary for this deeper type of healing. Even back in 1956, when Bill Wilson took his first tab of LSD, he talked about that profound healing and wanted to bring that to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and had pushback from all the founders. And there was a huge uproar about that. And so most people don't know that that happened. Most people don't know like the healing that happened in Bill W's life from depression by using psychedelics. And in fact, the last time he stopped using psychedelics, I think was in 1960 and he passed away in 1971. And from 1960 until the day he died, he never had another depressive episode, never. And he attributes that to his work with LSD. And he was in a very supportive environment at that time. He was involved in a lot of esoteric communities, Aldous Huxley. There were many doctors that he affiliated with, doctors that were at the VA hospital. He even spoke with Carl Jung about the mystical or spiritual experiences that he had. He was very much deeply ingrained in this community that supported this type of medicine. and. It's really unfortunate to see that at that time, the research that was being done and the effects that this was having already in the addiction community, the profound effects it was having on people who had addictive problems at that time be cut off also and for it to sort of be covered up from the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So For me, I will continue to follow a path of utilizing these medicines in a way that works for me. And some people will have judgments about that and feel that I'm not sober or this, that, and the other. And I really don't care anymore because the importance of bringing this work forward and bringing it to those people that need it and that can experience profound healing is much more important to me than having the acceptance of people that are in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you so much. The question, can you be a psychonaut and be in recovery? It's an interesting way to frame that question, first of all, because some people will think of the word psychonaut and think that these people just want to explore different states of consciousness for fun. But it's another arena to be a psychonaut in recovery that's exploring with tremendous self-compassion and deeply healing our own wounds. And so no one can answer that question for you if you, the listener out there, can be a psychonaut and be in recovery. But I think you shared so well your entire life story about being in recovery and how you are working with psychedelics and how it most importantly is bringing us back to compassion, which I think is missing in the rooms. It's not to devalue Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. They have a tremendous value, but I think your story speaks to bringing more compassion. Even the way you described your journaling, just letting that critic out and stopping, going to those non-ordinary states of consciousness, whether they're psychedelics or breathwork or, or beyond, so that we can drop in and forgive and be kind and grieve what we lost in our lives. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And You know, it's very interesting because through times, things have changed, even within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And like I said, there were many positive benefits that I've gotten from those rooms. But I also found people who were very supportive of different ways of doing things. One of my sponsors early on said to me, wear your program like a loose garment don't let it constrict you. 
And I never forgot that, you know, and what that means to me is don't take the literature so seriously. Take what you need and leave the rest behind. The big book was written back in 1939. The language is very old. It's written by white, older men. Most of them were businessmen. There's a lot of misogynistic language in the book. There's a chapter in the book called To the Wives that is the most condescending piece of literature I've ever (laughs) read. There's tons of talk about needing to believe in God. I am an agnostic. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, right? There may be, there may not be. But what I do know is from my experiences through psychedelics that there is a profound energetic connection that connects all of us, our consciousness, the world, whatever it might be. And I was able to have insight into that in my psychedelic experience, which has helped me to come to terms and have more peace in my heart about what that is. I always struggled. I'm like, what is this God thing? What am I supposed to believe in? And I'm supposed to turn my will and my life over to this thing? And I don't think that's it at all. I think that it's about being able to learn and grow and evolve. And yeah, you know, being able to see past our egos. To me, that is that is the biggest thing. To see that there's something greater out there. There's a greater connection. There's a greater consciousness. To me, that that's what speaks of a higher power. I also just don't believe that you have to believe in a God or a higher power. There are many people that are atheists that don't believe in anything and they stay sober. It's fine. So it's this sort of hardcore evangelical, big book thumping type of rhetoric, that type of authoritarianism, that needs to be gone from the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It can be very shaming, instilling tremendous fear in people. I think what needs to be more in the rooms is love and compassion and non-judgment. People are not going to always stay sober. AA is not for everyone. And just because someone walks in the room and leaves and finds help somewhere else doesn't mean that that they are off on their disease doing something. It's just these very strange ideas and thoughts and constructs that are sometimes still in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those things are very binding and And those are the things that I don't want to be a part of. I want to be a part of evolution, a part of change, a part of things that help people, especially for women. They always talk about smashing down your ego and Alcoholics Anonymous. I understand that to an extent coming from like a super arrogant businessman who's always thinks they're right. But many women come to the rooms and their ego is crushed. Their soul is crushed. Most people come in with traumatic experiences in their lives and they they are scared and fearful. They don't even know what an ego is. So to me, I had to learn how to build my ego up in a healthy fashion and learn to trust myself and be assertive and find my voice and start to speak my truth. I needed the love and support of others to help build that up in me. And oftentimes like that, you know, that person who, who doesn't follow the rules completely, who doesn't follow the rules in AA, they, they are looked down upon. That's not right. I just wanted to ask if, you know, there's any listeners out there that are struggling with that decision of, should I come and work on my own healing? Should I consider going to a retreat like Ellisonia and, you know, I'm in recovery? How would you suggest they best set themselves up for that transition like you did? For me, I had a tremendous amount of support. I had a therapist that knew me while I'd been working with her for on and off over many years. I had a really wonderful support network outside of Alcoholics Anonymous and a few people within the rooms that were very like-minded like I was. And we would talk about our challenges and struggles openly with each other about what we saw and what we experienced in the rooms of AA. And so for me, it was really important to find somebody that I could 
talk to about these things, a confidant, a friend, a therapist. And then I started doing the research. So for me, it was really important being in healthcare for so long. I want to see research. I want to see documentation that's going to support something. And that is really going to help me. So I really dove in and I tried to find the best stuff to show support that suggested these things would help. I also talked to my spouse about that many times and that was helpful. I found other people that were nurses that I could talk to about this stuff and we exchanged information. So I think it's important first to gather information. I think that what's most important is if you're in recovery and you're wanting to look at a retreat, especially Eleusenia, which is like phenomenal, first do your research and ask yourself, what is it you're looking for? You know, be honest with yourself, ask those tough questions. And then if it feels right for you, I say, check it out. Psilocybin is a schedule one drug, <laughs> which is baffling to me. It's so baffling because there's really no harm that comes from it. If you want to look at alcohol, for instance, the amount of deaths that occur from that drug on a daily, monthly, yearly basis is astounding. And that's a legal drug. Most importantly, information, be honest with yourself, ask yourself what your intentions are, be clear with that. And if you do have a confidant or someone that you can talk to, reach out to them and talk to them. But don't go talk to someone who right off the bat, you know, is going to be adamantly against it or judging of you or thinking that you're only doing this in order to get high. I will tell you right now, committing to doing something like the Elysinia retreat is not a matter of like, oh, I'm just going to go get high. It's not something that people are going to, after an experience, come back and start using it addictively. For me, as someone in recovery, looking at it in that fashion, I have no desire to sit here and do these things every day. They're prolific and profound experiences. You're not supposed to have them every single day. And there's a tremendous amount of work that follows after those experiences. So for me, I feel that it's safe. For those people that are ready for it, I feel it's just such an amazing step forward and the evolution of healing and transformation. Well, Edith, thank you so much for sharing your story. It is so near and dear to me that we reach people that have to struggle with their own support network and their own decision. And so thank you so much for sharing everything that you did and laying out what you think would be helpful. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. You can find all the information that you need to learn everything about this retreat on EleusiniaRetreat.com. We are a retreat that offers ongoing integration support, breathwork classes, and cultivation support after you have attended this retreat. It's an amazing experience that's one of its kind. If you're looking for a science-based retreat, something out of the box, something to change your life, something to to add to your practice, this is where you really need to start, eleusiniaretreat.com.